following audio is from a sermon series on the book of Colossians entitled, Jesus Over Everything. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit scmoline.com. If, then, you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Some weeks, sermons come easy. I I got um, a lot of ideas, a lot of things to write down. Other weeks, it's harder to put things together. This is one of those weeks where it was easy in the sense of maybe having too much content. And so as I stand behind the pulpit, there's probably two or three sermons sitting on my office floor that I've sort of whittled down. And so this is one of those sermons where, man, we're just scraping the tip of the iceberg, specifically as we look at chapter, or verse five of of Colossians chapter three. Um, And so I just really need the Lord's help this morning. So would you join me in prayer uh, as we dive into this text? Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you um, that you are not some God who remains unknown, that there's no way of understanding you or knowing anything about you, but you've revealed yourself to us both in your son, that the word of God has become flesh and dwelt among us, but also in the word of God, that you are speaking to your people even today. And so we pray, Lord, that you would speak to us now as we sit behind a screen in our homes, at our, at our living room uh, couch or, or at our dining room table. God, would you speak to us? Would you open up our ears to hear from you? Would you soften our hearts to receive whatever word you have for us, God, and would you enable us through the power of your Holy Spirit to live out what you call us to for our good and for the glory of Jesus. And it's his name we pray, amen. One of the hardest things that we do in life, or one of the hardest things to do in life, rather, is to be honest about ourselves. We live in an era of filters, Literally every social media app that you have on your phone has some sort of filter capability on it, meaning that that you point that camera at yourself and you can modify what you look like by applying different lenses, right? So we we can mask uh, our blemishes, we can edit the real us so that we look a little bit better as we try to keep the unflattering bits of ourselves out of sight from other people. Now this happens on a physical level, But I would say even more profoundly, it happens on an internal level. We tend to censor our thoughts, our words. We want to hide the unflattering things that we have done in order to keep an image for ourselves, in order to sort of look better than we ought to. And the longer that we live this way, sort of using filters to make ourselves look good or look better, the more steeped we get in in this life of deception. Right, really what we're doing is, is kind of creating a, a, a life uh, of a house of cards. And with one blow of the truth, our lives could come undone, right? We just stack, you know, little fib upon little fib, little edit over little edit, and, and it just all falls apart when we are revealed for who we are. 
This is exactly what happens to the prophet Isaiah when he sees God. He gets a vision of God. He, 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 ca- he catches a vision. He's blown away and he says, woe is me, I have come undone, right? His life of cards, the house of cards has collapsed and he is left with, with a vision of this big glorious God. And what happens is he is able, this allows him to look in on himself and to see just how much like, unlike God he is. He, he, you could say that seeing God's glory has revealed his own sinfulness, his ugliness. And honestly, this is where the story should end, right? We see God for who he is, we see that we're a train wreck, and boom, story's done, what is there left to say? But this is actually right where God's mercy begins. Because even in Isaiah's story, as he sees God, he says, woe is me, I've come undone, an angel of the Lord comes toward him and applies a burning coal and touches his lips with it. One of the things he says, I'm a man of unclean lips. And in that act, we're told that his guilt is taken away from him and his sins are atoned for. See, this is where God's mercy begins. God reveals himself, Isaiah sees what he's like, and God provides a way for him to be made right. And the cross does the same exact thing for us. God reveals Uh, his glory in the cross, but God also reveals to us our own sinfulness. The cross finds us out. It shows us the nastiness of our sin and how grotesque it really is. It says, yes, sinner, you really are that bad, but at the same time as it shows us how bad we are, it shows us how glorious God is in the fact of how deeply we are loved. Because through the cross, Jesus takes away our guilt. He atones for our sin. And the more that reality sinks into our hearts, the more profoundly we know this, this allows us to stop posturing. This allows us to be real and honest with ourselves. We don't have to hide. We don't have to pretend. We don't have to you know, put this act forward like, like we're somebody that we're not. In fact, this honesty is a marker of of a genuine Christian. Like this, this is the marker of somebody who's really encountered the grace of God when they've come to the end of themselves, when they see themselves for what they really are, and then they see the God of mercy and love moving toward them in Christ. Now people who are posturing religious people, they don't understand grace because they're, they just keep doing the whole rigmarole of posturing, filters, editing, but people who understand the gospel really get. This is why in John's letter, 1 John chapter one, he says that if we say we have no sin, the truth is not in us, right? We're lying, we're making ourselves to be a liar and we're lying about God. But if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us. And if you're with us on Sunday mornings or even participating with the the liturgy videos that we've put together for you at home, our our liturgy walks us through this reality each week, right? Just in the the layout of the the format of the liturgy. There's the call to worship, right? What does the call to worship do? It pulls our eyes up to see what God is like, what he's like, how he's dealt with us, uh, uh, just his, his characteristics and, and personality. And we, we see God in all of his glory and his beauty. And in, in doing so, it sort of reflects back on us. We kind of look at ourselves and say, man, I, I'm not like that. Like God is holy and, and I'm not holy. I'm unholy. 
which reveals to us our, our sin. And so, so what's the, the move that we make then? Well, we can either double down on our sin, hide it, conceal it, or the gospel frees us to confess our sins. And so that's what we do. We move right into our confession of sins together. We're together as a body of Christ. We confess, as church people, we're sinners. And if you're coming in the room and you're thinking, oh, these church people have it all figured out. No, like that, that's why we're church people. We don't have it figured out. We're coming together to, to cling to a savior who does have it figured out, who, who figured it out for us. And so we confess our sins and then we re- recite the gospel. We re- recall the gospel truths of what Jesus has done to absolve us, to cleanse us, to free us from our sins. So not only do we do this corporately on Sunday mornings, but this is like the way of life that, that a gospel person lives in. Martin Luther says that the sum of a Christian life is that of faith and repentance, that repentance is confessing our sin, turning away from our sin, and clinging to Jesus in faith. And this is our lifelong, um, sort of the procedure that we follow as Christians. We confess our sins, we cling to Jesus, right? That's the sort of freedom that we receive in the gospel. And this allows us to acknowledge two things, really two helpful things. One about ourselves, that we're sinners, And two, that God has ample grace for sinners. In fact, the only kind of grace that has available is for sinners. And as we've gone through the book of Colossians, we we can see, we can kind of trace this idea through and see where it's been articulated in that way. Paul writes to those who are in Colossae and tells them that their record of debt, right, that all of the the list of sins that they've done wrong or the, the things that they ought to have done that they left undone, that record of debt that stands against us is canceled as it was nailed to the cross. And it's in Jesus that we have redemption, right, which is the forgiveness of sins. And we can praise God for that forgiveness, right, the work on the cross that Jesus has done on our behalf, but today's passage is gonna take us a step further, a step deeper into the gospel-centered life because it's not just gonna tell us about the forgiveness that's available to us and that's available to us at all times, right? Whenever you sin, whether past, present, future sins, that gift of forgiveness is available to us in Christ, but it's going to show us another weapon that we have that helps us walk with Jesus. It's going to show us that God's grace actually enables us to put sin to death, right? So it's, it's more than just forgiveness. It's more proactive than that, that God's grace allows us to put sin to death. Or in other words, the gospel makes us sin assassins, right? We, as Christians, have a license to kill Sin, and, and this is what I wanna take a look at today through as we kind of hone in on verse five of chapter three. I want you to take a look at what, 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 number one, what sin is, two, why we must put it to death, and three, how we go about killing it. So it's those three things. So what is sin? What is sin? Now I think most of us have some sort of point of reference to the concept of sin. Most people understand, understand sin as doing something bad, right? We, we can all look at somebody who's committed murder and say, oh yeah, that, that person has committed a sin. They, they've done some sort of grotesque external behavior that has prevented human flourishing in some capacity. And so we can look at that sort of general concept of what sin is and agree with it. Yes, that's what sin is, but verse five actually shows us that sin is much more, or depending on how you look at it, much less than that. All right, Paul says 
in verse five, take a look again at, at it with me. He says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Now, right here, he, he's identifying, right? If, if he were, uh, if this was a killer contract, he's identifying the target. He's putting the hit out. He's saying, put to death what is earthly in you. Now, when Paul's talking about what is earthly in us, he's not necessarily talking about our physical body. In fact, that's not what he's talking about. Like, some people from a, a, a Gnostic background would say, okay, the, the physical is bad, the spiritual is good, so rid yourself of the, of the physical and just embrace the spiritual. But, but that is not what Christianity says because as Christians, we believe God created all things, even the human body, and he created it good. In fact, Genesis chapter one, you see he creates and affirms it. This is good, it gets the man, this is very good. And so God created the body, but, but here's what went wrong in Genesis chapter three. Sin entered in the world and it corrupted all things, including our body. So these, these beauties that had potential for glory uh, are now corrupted by sin, but by the gospel, by the work of Jesus, as he's renewing all things, he also redeems the body. And so there's a sense where the body is, is morally neutral, right? It can be used for good, it can be used for evil. God intended it to be used for good. God, God intended for the body to, to radiate glory. And so it's not this physical body. When Paul's talking about what is earthly, he's contrasting here um, in terms of what is heavenly or what is above and in, in how he references that in verses one and two of Colossians chapter three. What is good, what is beautiful, what is true to what is earthly, what is not good and what is not beautiful and what is untrue. And so he's saying, put to death these things. What's not good, what's not beautiful, what's untrue. And, and it might be deeds, like things that we actually do. Um, sins that we commit that, you know, like murder, for example. Yeah, don't, don't murder people. That, that, in fact, that's one of the Ten Commandments. But he's even getting beneath that and saying that there are desires within us. Not just the things that we do, but the desires that are in our hearts that are set on anything less than what is good and beautiful and true. And anything that's set on, any desire that's set on anything that's less than what is good and beautiful and true is considered sin. Now Paul, he provides a list for us. Um, it, it's not a comprehensive list. In fact, there'll be a, next week in our, our passage, we'll see another list of sins that Paul's lay out. Now, these are not comprehensive. This is not all-inclusive in any sense of the matter. Um, but, but what Paul is showing, he's identifying specific sins here as he goes on in verse five. He says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Well, what's earthly in you? He goes on, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Now, all of these things, okay, all, all of these sins that he lays out, we gotta define them because I think if it's up to us, how we define them would be very different than how God defines these various sins. And so how does the scripture speak of In what regard are these sins? So the first one, sexual immorality. What, what's Paul talking about here? Well, the biblical definition of sexual immorality is any sexual activity that happens outside of biblically defined marriage between one man and one woman, right, for life, united in, in a covenant of marriage. Anything that happens outside of that union is considered sexual immorality. 
And, and so there's this, this act. You can say, okay, well, I, I, did, something, I did something promiscuous. That's, that itself is sin, right? Sexual immorality. But then he kind of takes a step in. Okay, so then he goes, impurity. Well, what does impurity re, uh, relate to? Well, this is talking about a contamination of character because of some kind of immoral action. Now, given where this is at in in its context, this impurity is, is regarding to the contamination of character based on sexual, sexually immoral, uh, immoral actions, right? And so in that sense, not, we don't just do something wrong, that we actually become stained by the sin that we've committed, that it reflects on our character. And then it takes a step even closer in, um, and, and it goes from what's external more to the internal and talks about, okay, well, also passion and evil desire. Now, now this word passion here, it's not like, you know, if you're passionate about, you know, what it, like something good, like you're passionate about feeding the hungry. That's a good thing to be passionate about. There are good passions and there are poor passions. These passions that Paul is talking about here is, are poor passions, right? Specifically, this word passions could be translated as lust, right? Lust is a desire or a longing or a burning want for something that is not good, right? Or, or even in a sense of too much of a good thing. And so Paul uses, okay, well, we've gone from doing an, an externally uh, visible act of sexual immorality. We've, we, our character has been corrupted because of that. And then he goes, okay, well, and the reason for this is because you have these evil desires um, in, in your life, the, this passion, this dark passion or lust and, and these evil desires, this burning want for something that isn't God and beneath that what's motivating it is covetousness, right? Or, or you could also translate it as greed. And this isn't greed in, in like a financial sense. I think that's what we usually think about when we say, oh, that person's greedy, right? They're talking about, oh, they like to keep their money. They're stingy with their money. That's not what, what it's talking about here. Greed in the sense of we are, are longing and craving and in pursuit of more experiences, right? We, we just want more, more, more. And you can see that financially or even in the realms of sexuality where I just want to have more experiences. And so Paul is saying here, look, look this, is, this is what sin is. Like, this is the spectrum of sin from external to internal. And our culture might look at this list and say, man, that, that's archaic, right? This is outdated. This is no longer relevant. We've evolved past this. We're more mature sexually now. And so all this stuff, we need to just scrap it and kind of create our own new rules. And, and, and in a sense, I'd agree with that. Like, well, part of that. I would agree with, yeah, it is dated. In fact, you, you look at this and you can find traces of the Ten Commandments all throughout this list, right? Well, we're told not to commit adultery, one of the Ten Commandments. We're told not to covet our neighbor's property or wife. We should have no other gods before God, Yahweh, the one true God, right? All of those are parts of the Ten Commandments. And so, yeah, it, it is dated. It is old, but because it's old does not mean it's less true. Just because it's, it's dated doesn't mean the standard of sin has changed in any regard. Regardless of, of cultural opinion, regardless of what the world might think or how the world might define what sin is and, and sort of make the, the, the margins of grayness wider and wider and wider, God clearly defines what sin is. Right, and so if you've got to choose between, okay, this is what the culture says, and this is what God says in his word, you need to listen to what God says and how he defines sin. 
And what this shows us, it, it isn't just this external, grotesque manifestation of some sort of um, visible sin. That's not just what sin is limited to. What this list shows us is that there's a lot of internal and hidden parts of sin. Right? Sin isn't just bad behavior or doing something naughty. The, the root of sin gets deep down into our desires and our thoughts and our wants. And what Paul tells us, that these things from, from sexual immorality to greed to, to covetousness are equally sin. And that's why Jesus says what he says on the Sermon of Mount. When he's addressing the, the, the topic of adultery, of sexual immorality, he says, even if you look at a woman with lustful longing, it's considered adultery. Right? This is, this is a, a radical take on sin. This is what the Bible defines as sin. Not just the external doing, but the internal desires and longings. And it shows us that sin is so much bigger than doing something wrong. In fact, the way that the Bible, uh, maybe like at its core, defines sin is idolatry. Right? That, that's, that's the word. Sin and idolatry go hand in hand, just like it does go right here. Things of the earth and sexual immorality, passions, lusts, evil desires. Right? It all comes back to idolatry, which is idolatry is a misalignment of our desires. Idolatry is either desiring too much of a good thing or too little of the ultimate thing. Right? Either way, it's idolatry. Idolatry is taking a good thing and making it God or taking God and making it just another one of the good things that he's given us. Now in this passage, at no place is the Apostle Paul condemning sex. Right? In no place is he saying, okay, sex is a bad thing, just stop altogether, right? That's, that's not at all, right? If you, if you look at what the Apostle Paul teaches on sex, he, has, he actually has a more glorious vision of what sex is, how, how, how beautiful and awesome sex is and that it's a gift from God. But our tendency as embodied creatures is to take sex or sexuality and overvalue it. It's to take a good thing and make it an ultimate thing, a God thing, right? I, I think it's interesting how we just came out of last week, we're talking about identity, our identities in Christ, and the very next thing that the Apostle Paul t talks about is, is maybe what we might say sexual identity, right? And, and there's this tendency within our culture, like this is how you define yourself. This is how you make a name for yourself. This is how you, you know, become a person. And Bible, the Bible tells us something completely different, right? It, our identity is in Christ. It's not in our sexuality. And so, if we look at this and we say, okay, sin is, sin is both external and internal. Um, and if sin can be found underneath of maybe everything that we do, right, it's sort of underneath all of our desires, it means that sin is far more pervasive than we might have thought. That sin can be going on underneath the surface without having any sort of visible evidence of it. So in other words, you don't need to be having an affair to be sinning sexually, right? Or, or here's another thing, it's like maybe you could be doing a good thing but from sinful motives or a sinful desire is what's compelling it. See, that, that's how pervasive sin is. It gets into the nook and crannies and, and sort of spoils things for us. You can almost think of it in terms of coronavirus. Right? We're, we're being told that coronavirus um, 
There, there are people who are contaminated with coronavirus that are not showing symptoms, right? They don't have the external indicators of actually having the sickness. Now, what they're telling us is that that can make things all the more dangerous, right? You got people running around, got, got the sickness going on, and, and, and that can make things 10 times, 100 times more lethal than if we don't deal with it correctly. And so there's a sense where external sins, uh, internal sins, both need to be dealt with appropriately if we're going to shut them down. But our tendency is to downplay. Our, our tendency is to appropriate our sins and say to ourselves, you know what, I, I know I'm a sinner. I, I know I have this particular thing that I, I keep falling into or this pattern in my life, you know, but, but it's not that bad. I, I've got it under control. And, and in that regard, we tend to, play with our sin. We coddle it. Like, like almost as if treating sin like a cute and harmless little kitten, right? Oh, you know, it's not that bad. I, I got it under control. It, it's fine. It's fine. But eventually, that cute little harmless kitten is going to grow into a ferocious lion. And that lion is ready to pounce, to kill and destroy. This is why 17th century pastor John Owen said, you must be killing sin or it will be killing you, right? That's the sort of posture that we need to have towards sin. The danger of sin isn't that it's just doing something wrong or an arbitrary no-no that we need to avoid. The danger of sin is that it has a deadly effect. Now, ultimately, we're told, Scripture tells us that the wages of sin is death, right? And eventually, sometime, you're going to have to close your account. You're going to have to stand before God and, and give, uh, give a case for your life, and if you are marked by sin in any way, God is going to require your life as justice, right? That, that's justice, as a just payment for your sins. So in that sense, the wages of sin is death. But not only is sin at work now um, having a deadly effect or in the future, but, but it's at work now. It's robbing us of our humanity. In fact, sin makes us less human. It makes us less humane. Now, here's what I mean by that. We, as humans, are wired for relationships. Right? That, that's, that's maybe the most profound thing about us. We're wired for relationships with God, relationship with God, and relationship with other people. That's the very thing that makes us humans. Now, God's intent since the beginning of creation was to fulfill us with relationships, that, that we would have this capacity for relationships and it would be fulfilling to us. So you can see this in the Garden of Eden before sin entered the world. Adam and Eve would walk with God in the cool of the day. They would get to enjoy God face to face, deep relationship with one another. And then you see it with, between Adam and Eve, in the garden before sin, they were naked and unashamed. They had this deep communion, this union with one another, a, a relational capacity that was filled, uh, the ability to connect with one another in some of the most profound ways. Now that was God's intention for us from the beginning, but sin enters the world in Genesis chapter three, and it destroys this capacity for relationship. It, it actually in this sense, it does two things. It, it, it lessens our capacity for relationships. So think of it in this way. If, you're, if your heart were a container, let's say it's like a 64-ounce a 
you know, jug of something. You know, at, before the fall, you had 64 ounces of heart capacity to fill up. Well, sin shrinks the capacity for love, right? Shrinks the capacity for relationship in our heart. So now instead of 64 ounces, all we can fill ourselves with is 12 ounces, right? So our capacity shrinks, but also our ability to connect also uh, becomes futile, or, or not, not necessarily futile, but it becomes way more challenging, right? So this connectivity that we have, um, it, it's more like a, a frayed wire um, with a short in it. There, there's sometimes where the connection hits, right? And we're able to connect with, uh, w- with God, connect with other people, and we can experience um, s- some sense of relationship in that, in that regard. But there's other times where it's non-existence, where it feels sporadic and inconsistent. All sin cripples our ability to connect with God and with other people and our capacity for relationship, especially sexual sins. Now you can see how this plays out between Adam and Eve, um, between each other and between Adam and Eve and God, right? Sin comes into the world. There's no more walks in the cool of the day. They, they hide from God. They're afraid of God. They're now ashamed between one another. They're naked and now they're ashamed and they've got to cover up. Adam and Eve are blaming each other for the wrong that they did, right? The, the sin, it, it's visible in that moment. Sin has destroyed these relationships. It's, it's definitely hampered them in some ways. Very impaired. And sin still does the same to us today. This is why marriages get ruined, right? Every single divorce, you can trace it back, some sort of sin is at play. You can, you can think of it this way. Why are relationships, like friendships, so hard? Why is it so hard to, to like love everybody in your missional community? It's because sin makes our capacity for relationships smaller and the ability to connect so much harder. It's why our spiritual lives can feel like one day it's, it's hot, like we're just on fire for Jesus, mountaintop experience, Jesus is the best, and the next day we're down in the valley wondering, like, where is God? Has he forsaken me? Has he forgotten about me? Right, that's why we are so inconsistent in our relationship with God, with other people. It's because sin affects our, our, what makes us human, our, our ability to connect and our relational capacity. And you can see this all throughout the Old Testament in the story of the Israelites. This whole time, God is pursuing them. He's looking to have a relationship with them. He's like, this is how we have a relationship. He lays it out. Like the Ten Commandments aren't just rules. He's like, this is how you go about having a relationship with God and how you have a good relationship with other people, right? The first four are about, here's how you relate to God. Here's how you relate to others. It's all about relationship. And Israel, things in Israel turn sour when they start worshiping other gods. When they start taking a good thing and making it a God thing. When they take something good and overvalue it, or they take God himself and undervalue him. And you can see it all throughout the Old Testament. How idolatry makes us less human. In fact, the, the whole idea, you become what you worship. Right? That, that, that's, that's maybe one of the motives uh, or motifs of the Old Testament. You are what you worship. So we become less human when we're swept up in idolatry. It's, idolatry isn't something that just happens way old back in the old day, and you don't need a little shrine to commit idolatry. It, idolatry, like I said, anything good that's over-evalu- or overvalued, 
And so this story very much is playing out in our lives today. Now what's scary about it is that sin is at work to undermine the very thing that Jesus came to restore. Right? Jesus came. The, the cross was about regaining access to God. That's why the curtain in the temple was torn in two when Jesus was crucified. Right? The, the connection line is now open. We can have this way to relate to God through Christ. And, and because we're united to Christ, we are the, now united to our brothers and sisters in the faith. This gives us the ability to interact, to relate. And Jesus, the very thing, these relationships, Jesus came to restore. Right? This is what makes us human. And because sin is opposed to the very thing that Jesus came to restore, the thing that makes us human, we have to be aggressors towards sin. We have to take sin seriously. We can't just be flipping about it. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I'm struggling with this for years. It is what it is, you know. And just sort of resign. We have to take action. We have to fight. We have to, as Paul tells us here in verse five, put sin to death. So then how do we do that, right? How do, how do we put sin to death? If, if sin is internal and external, if sin, sin has plagued us in, in the most profound sort of ways, if sin is trying to kill us and, and interrupt everything good that Jesus is for, then how do we go about killing our sin? Well, like, like a trained sniper, we need to first get our sin into sights, okay? We, we've got to lock in on the target. Now, when I say get our sins in the sight, I mean my sin. You need to get your sin in the sights. One of our tendencies is to put other people's sins in our own sights. That, that's not necessarily helpful because we are called to put death, put to death what is earthly inside of us ourselves. Jesus said it like this, like how quick we are to point out the speck in our brother's eyes when we have a plank in our own. And so here we are. We, we, can't, we can't kill other people's sin for them. It's their job. Now, this is where Christian community steps in and says, hey, I can help you see your sin because there's a lot of times I'm blind to my sin. You're blind to your sin. Somebody's got to speak up. Hey, brother, you, you, have you noticed that you have this tendency, right? And that's how we can love one another well by speaking truth and love, right? Pointing out where we've fallen short in a gracious way and offering help. But, but for me, my focus is in on my own sin. Your focus is on your own sin. Now it's likely that um, you experience sexual sin, right? I, I, I think there are very, very, very few people who say, oh, I, I don't have any sort of sexual sin that I, I deal with on a regular basis. We are all at one time or another, and most of us presently are sexual sinners, myself included. We might not be having uh, an affair, we might not be cheating on our wife, we might, you know, might not be looking at porn, but we are sexual sinners because sin gets into those crevices, right? The desires that are misplaced. Now, for most of us, there is a sin issue in regards to sex that needs to be dealt with, but maybe for you, that, that's not... The, the place in your life that me, needs the most um, urgent attention. Right? There might be other areas of sin in your life that, that are really diminishing your humanity that you need to set your sights on and get to work on those right now. Be putting them to death. 
right? It's not a matter of if sin is happening. We, we are all sinning. Until Jesus comes back in glory and makes us like him, we are all still dealing with sin. And so it's not a matter of if sin is happening. It's a matter of what sin is happening, right? What our sin looks like. So we gotta get that right into the sights. And when we set our sights on our sin, we don't just watch it. We don't just monitor it. It's time to pull the trigger, right? It's time to, to put it to death. And, and really, there, there's a lot to be said about, about this, how we can do this. There's a lot of great resources. Um, License to Kill is a great book. Um, Mortification of Sin by John Owen. Or there's another book um, called The Enemy Within. All of these books are so helpful in helping us navigate um, the action of pulling the trigger to put our sin to death. But, but here I'm gonna sum it up in, in two, two ways. First, we kill our sin by starving our sin. Because if we get down to it, all of our sexual sin sort of um, comes from lust or greed or this covetousness. So it starts with desire. And so there's a sense we starve our sins by taking away the, this food source, by taking away what it feeds on. Right? This might mean you need to delete that app on your phone. This means you might need to go to bed with your wife. This means you might need to get uh, covenant eyes on your computer, put the laptop away, break off that toxic relationship. You, maybe you need to get out of the house and go for a walk so the, t- the, the temptation to sin isn't there, right? That, that's okay. The Apostle Paul says, flee from sexual immorality, right? That, that's part of it. Walk away. Remove yourself. Do whatever you can to, to starve that desire to sin sexually or or in whatever capacity your desire is to sin. But if we just leave it there, right, that's just behavior modification. We're crafty people. In fact, you can do all those things. I guarantee you, you'll find a way around Covenant Eyes. You'll find another app to download. You'll find another way to look at what you want, another way to flirt with somebody. You're gonna always, if the desire goes unstopped it's always going to find a way it's going to beg to be fed in some way shape or form so we need more than just behavior modification we've got to get to the root of the issue it's like if you got weeds in your lawn you got dandelions spread through your lawn you don't just walk through the lawn and pop off the yellow tops and oh yeah i solved that problem right you don't don't just change the behavior on the top you got to get down to the root you got to dig it out And the way that we dig out our sin might sound counterintuitive, but it's we feast on God. So we starve our sin and we feast on the goodness and the beauty and the truth of God. Thomas Chalmers calls this the expulsive power of a new affection. If if we've got desires, they're going to beg to be fed in some way, shape, or form. And so we need to take this lesser thing that we've been desiring and replace it with something more beautiful, more glorious, and more true. And there's nothing more beautiful, glorious, or true than the God of the Bible. This is the expulsive power of, the new, of a new affection because underneath every desire, underneath every lust that we have is a longing that is meant to be fulfilled in God himself. 
right? It, it's an opportunity for us to turn away from sin and turn and be satisfied in Jesus. And so we kill our sin. Our sin is starved and we kill our sin by feasting on Jesus. And to the degree that we kill sin, the degree will increase that we experience our union with Jesus. Or in other words, the, the smaller our sin becomes, the greater and more sweet our union with Jesus becomes. Right? And this is what Paul's been talking about this whole time, that you've been united with Christ, that you've been raised with him and you've been buried with him, that, that you are set with him in the heavenly places, that we are with Jesus and he satisfies that all things are made by him and for him and they exist to glorify him. But here's the thing. Killing sin, like doing what Paul tells us to do here in verse five, cannot happen unless we are first crucified and raised with Jesus. Or in other words, we cannot save ourselves by our own efforts of, of cutting out the sin in our life. Jesus must ultimately defeat the power of sin and death, pay the debt of sin on the cross for us. There's no other way. Right, so and, and until you put your faith in him, until you trust in Jesus and see yourself united to him, all this other stuff, the last, whatever, however long I've been talking here, is irrelevant to you. This is step one. Look at Jesus. Take a look at the glory of the cross and what he's did. No other God subjects himself to the futility of our sins. All right, Second Corinthians tells us that he became sin who knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. See, Jesus subjected himself, became our sin, and this is why the cross displays God's glory. This is why the cross is, isn't a, a, a torture device that we are afraid of. Rather, it's, it's an instrument of redemption that displays God's love for us. That while we were still sinners, while we were dead in our sins, Christ made us alive. That he went the distance, not us. He went the distance to restore our humanity. He offers us the ability to deepen our capacity for relationships, to, to strengthen the connection that we long for in relationships. And if you're not a Christian yet, I, I pray that you would receive this total and complete forgiveness that's available to you in Jesus Christ. To see, look, you're not defined by your sin. That Christ has paid the price. He has liberated you from your sins. He's, he's paid for the sins and now as a result of his power over sin and death, you are alive with him. And so take Christ this morning. And for those of us who have received the grace of God's forgiveness, know that this grace is still at work. This grace is still at work putting our sins to death now. Because Jesus wants to give you more of himself. Jesus wants to deepen your understanding and your experience of your union with him. And the only way that can happen is if you put your sin to death so you can become more alive in Christ. And so brothers and sisters, let us do as what Hebrews chapter one tells us to do. Throw off everything that hinders us. Throw off everything that stands in the way of this connection, this deep relationship with Jesus and with others. And let us 
experience and bask in this, this deep and increasing capacity that we've gained in him. This connection that we have with Jesus. And let us live as we've been called, fully human, fully alive, made alive in Christ. Father, we thank you for your grace. That's at work saving us. That's at work redeeming us. That's at work now putting us, putting our sin to death so that we would live. And just like the Apostle Paul, as he said in chapter one, uh, we, we do this not with our own energy. Uh, we would exhaust ourselves in a matter of moments if we tried to do this, but we do this in the energy uh, that Christ provides, that the Holy Spirit living inside of us is pushing the sin out so that we become increasing uh, in our glory from one degree of glory to the next as we worship, not, not idols, not which makes us less human, but worship Jesus, the God-man who makes us most human, that lets us come alive. So pray, I pray, God, you would do this work in us. I pray, Father, that you would be glorified because of this. And we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.